Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Let's turn together, if we could, to the passage that Chris just read. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. That's our passage for today. As we end the as we near the end of our series on 2 Thessalonians, we come to this passage that is really, really practical. Really practical. It's so practical, in fact, that I want to be careful that we don't lose sight of the gospel in the midst of our understanding of this passage as we work through uh, Paul's teaching against idleness and idle behavior within the church. So before we're done and before we take communion, I'll talk through gospel implications of this passage. But first, let's just, if we can start this morning, let's do a little thought experiment, okay? So travel with me back in a, in a time machine back to Thessalonica. And just imagine yourself as one of the members of this church receiving Second Thessalonians for the first time from the Apostle Paul. And of course, it wasn't called Second Thessalonians back then. It was just another letter from you know, the spiritual father of this church, the Apostle Paul. So imagine even as part of that church, hooray, hooray, another letter from Paul. And what you would do at that time is you would gather all the people together, all the people of the church into one place, maybe someone's house, like Jason's house, and you would read that letter out loud to everybody in the church. And everybody would ooh and ah at the words of the Apostle Paul as he gives them instructions and encourages them. And, you know, they, this is an encouraging letter, by and large, as was 1 Thessalonians. As Paul says, don't, don't give up church, press on, keep enduring through suffering, as Paul says, we're praying for you constantly. As Paul tells the church, you pray for us. We need it. Jesus is coming back soon, so get ready for Jesus' return. All very encouraging, all very exciting even for the church. And then the reader of that letter in this public forum finally gets to the last chapter, and he reads it out loud with conviction and gravitas, the, the passage that Chris just read. And part of the audience that's listening to this letter is a group of people that are idle within the church. And as the reader gets to about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, I can imagine that that part of the crowd, those that were elder, uh, uh, sorry, idle, started to get really nervous as Paul says something like verse 6. And then maybe around verse 10, when Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I imagine those idlers in the church started to sweat bullets. Like, oh boy, this is towards me. And Paul was direct with this letter. Paul gives a tough message. And that's exactly how he wanted those idlers to respond. And best case scenario, we don't know. We don't, there's no third Thessalonians. So we don't know how those idlers responded when they heard this message. But, but best case scenario, maybe, you know, maybe some of them repented right there on the spot. They heard this letter and they're like, okay, I, I'm a, I need to get a job. I need to work. I need to provide for myself. They repented, they turned, and that would be great. Maybe that did happen. That's a best case scenario. Worst case scenario is that the church had to follow through with what Paul says in verse 6. 
Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. In other words, enact church discipline against those who are idle among you. That's not very loving, Paul. That's not very kind, some people might say. Well, in the words of James Dobson, sometimes love must be tough. Sometimes the kindest thing that you can do to a person who is stuck in patterns of sin is keep your distance from them until they repent, until they turn from that evil behavior. That's talked about several times throughout the scriptures. And here's one of the reasons that Paul was particularly curt with this church, with this issue. It's because this isn't the first time that he's talked about this. In 1 Thessalonians, you know, he wrote 1 Thessalonians just a few months before he wrote 2 Thessalonians. And in that letter, he tells the church to admonish the idol. So he's he's already talked about this. In fact, he said this. He said, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Stop being busybodies. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on No one. So this was not just an isolated incident. This was something that was systemic within the church. Paul has to address it twice in two letters because the issue was so pronounced within the church. And so, I mean, 2 Thessalonians, if you read it, it's it's an encouraging letter. It's gentle. But Paul gets tough in chapter 3. And he wants the church to be serious about dealing with with idleness and idle activity within the church. So let's get into this this morning. Our message today is entitled Dealing with Idlers. And I want to give you three reasons why the church should be wary about idleness. Why is idleness so destructive in the church? Why why is it so serious a sin that Paul would dedicate a pretty significant part of this short letter to confronting idleness? I'll give you three reasons. Here's the first. Why should the church not tolerate idleness? First of all, because idleness leads to waywardness. Idleness leads to sinfulness, if you want to say it more generally. The well-known Puritan pastor Richard Baxter He said this once, this sounds very Puritan. It is swinish (laughs) and sinful not to work. Robert Bolton, another Puritan, he said this, idleness is the rust and cancer of the soul. And that that was a big part of the Puritan heritage. Actually, that's a big part of our country's heritage, the Protestant work ethic. That's why, by and large, our country has been so industrious is because this is, this is a part of who we are. This is a part of our background. This is part of our heritage. And even apart from scripture, apart even from the Puritans, the danger of idleness is taught in many different cultures. The Romans used to say this, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. By doing nothing, men learn to do evil. And Jewish rabbis would teach this, that he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. In other words, teach your kids how to work. Teach them how to work hard and even give them something to work at, a trade, which is very important throughout the centuries that a father teach his son a trade. Even in our own culture, it's quite common 
for us to recite this adage. Tell me if you've heard this before. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. We hear that a lot. Nobody knows where that adage came from. It probably dates back to the church fathers. Wherever it originated, it's true. It's, it's, and it's biblical. Idleness leads to waywardness. Idleness leads to sinfulness. And that's why God wants us to work. Paul says in verse six, now we command you brothers. There's a military nuance to that word command. Paul's not messing around. We command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can just see that group of Thessalonians as they're hearing this like, whoa, Paul's serious right now. What's he serious about? That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Paul draws a line here between idleness and disobedience. These things are together. Paul draws a line between walking in idleness and not walking in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Remember that word tradition? Okay, this is not bad tradition, the things that Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for. This is good tradition. This is teachings, the teachings of the, the gospel, the teachings of the scriptures, the teachings that Paul brought to this church. Some of you are idle and you're not obeying the teachings that I gave to you. Good tradition is being ignored. Why? Because people are busybodies. They're out there causing problems instead of working. Let's talk about this word idle because y'all need to understand this, this word. I, I want you to know that being idle doesn't mean like sitting around twiddling your thumbs doing nothing, okay? Not, not in the biblical sense. It, it means instead avoiding real work, valuable work, they are busy, but they're busy with the wrong things. They're not busy working. They're busy bodies. That's, that's insulting for Paul to say that, to be a busy body. I mean, that's, that's an insult. That's very unflattering for him to say that about anybody. And here's the Greek word for idol. It's the word atoktos. Atoktos. It, it means literally disordered or unruly. The Greek word toktos means ordered and fixed. So toktos is good. Autoktos, the opposite of that, is bad. It means disordered. It means chaotic. It means, here's a good British word for you. It means higgledy-piggledy, okay? Paul says, stop being higgledy-piggledy, church. Get your lives in order and get to work. Now, here's why idleness is such a problem for Paul. Okay, I want y'all to see, I don't want y'all to just see the negative of this. I want you to see the positive too. Idleness is bad, not just because it leads to waywardness, but because it robs a person of something good. It's good to work. It's good. It's ennobling. We were made to work. Thomas Edison said this. Alistair just did a report on Thomas Edison for school, and I love these quotes. Edison said, I never did anything worth doing by accident, nor did any of my inventions come by accident. They came by work. Edison says, similarly, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Alistair Begg said once that laziness is not an infirmity. Laziness is a sin. Why? Because God made us to work. 
And it's good. Martin Luther, you guys know Martin Luther, great reformer. He was adamant about establishing a strong work ethic in the church. In fact, he would lambaste the church for allowing lazy and unproductive monks to receive money from the people. That made him angry. He wanted monks to work. He wanted monks to earn their keep. He said once of monasteries, this is, this is totally Luther, this quote. You can read this on the screen. He said that monasteries are filled with indolent, unprofitable, and idle monks who under the guise of holiness live on the public alms in the greatest extravagance and voluptuousness. I don't even know what that means, living in voluptuousness. But, I mean, you get the sense, right, of what he's talking about. They're just living off of other people's hard work, and they're not working hard themselves. And part of the problem in the 16th century, as Luther saw it, this is part of our Protestant heritage too, he was frustrated with this divide that was created between the laity and the clergy. Like the clergy did really important stuff, and the laity, that's like second-class stuff. What the preachers and the monks do, that's good stuff. What everybody else does, that's not worthless. That's not worth anything. Luther hated that dichotomy. He believed in the priesthood of all the believers, that all of our work is as worship to the Lord and is good. William Tyndale, the English reformer, he dealt with this too. He said this, if we look externally, there is difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God, but as touching to please God, there is no difference at all. The biblical view of work is there is no difference when we do it to the honor of the Lord. There's no difference between preaching and washing the dishes. In both cases, God wants us to work hard and to work for his glory. It's good for us to work. Here's another great quote about work. The poet Robert Frost, he said this once. He said, the world is full of willing people, some willing to work and the rest willing to let them. Don't be the rest, harvest the cater. We were made to work and work is good for us. Now here's the objection. Here comes the objection, okay? And some of you might even say right now, but hey, Pastor Tony, don't you know, haven't you read the Bible? Haven't you read Genesis 3? Work is a curse. It's a curse. By the sweat of our brow, we work. And you know what, Pastor Tony? I'm gonna reverse the curse by not working. All right, how's that? <laughs> no. Now, work is not, we've dealt with this, haven't we? Work is not a curse. You know how I know that? You know how I know that work is not a curse? Because even before the fall, Adam was working, working, working in the garden. And it was good. It was good work. You know, even before Adam was working in the garden, you know who was working? God was working taking the dirt and putting man together and working six days on the seventh day he rested. It was good to work. If, if work is a curse, why would God do it? Why would God enact a curse? No, work is not a curse. Actually, this is something that differentiates us as Christians from other worldviews, other origin stories. If you remember Pandora's box, Pandora lived in paradise and everything is great and everything is perfect. And the gods tell Pandora, don't open that box. But of course, she disobeys and she opens the box. And all this misery comes out of the box. All the misery of the world, the sickness, the disease, the aging. And also part of that bad stuff that comes out of the box is work. 
So according to this Greek mindset, work, work is this evil that Pandora introduced into the world. That's not how the Bible sees it. That's not how God sees work. Similarly, and this is part of other, you know, ancient stories about how work and how people originated. There's this Babylonian creation myth called Enuma Elish. And in that myth, after the gods created the world, they created human beings to serve them because the gods didn't want to work. So they're like, well, let's create some human beings that can serve us as slaves. So that's what they did. They created these slaves, and so the gods can be served, and gods don't want to work. That's not why God created us. It's not that God is lazy and he wants us to serve him. God is perfectly self-sufficient. He doesn't need us to work for him. He created us and wants us to work because he works and he wants us to share in that goodness, in the joy of work. And so he put Adam in the garden. He said, work, work. It's good. There's even evidence. I could show you after service if you want. There's even evidence in the book of Revelation that there will actually be work in eternity and we'll love it and it'll be good. Work, there is a curse associated with work. There is. And I want, I want y'all to see the difference. Work is cursed by the sweat of our brow. We work and we labor, yes. But work itself is not a curse. Work is a good thing. And part of your work, let me say this too. Part of your work in this world, on this side of eternity, involves work at church and serving the Lord here. We talk at Harvest all the time about shouldering weekly kingdom responsibilities. It's because church is not a place where you just come and you're served, you know, by, by clergy or you're served by people who are really committed. Church is a place to give as well as to take. Church is a place where we leverage the gifts that we have been given for the benefit of all within the church. Everybody has gifts and everybody has resources and abilities that God has given to the church so that they can be pooled for the benefit of the church as a whole. And part of your job, part of your stewardship is to use those assets that God has given you for the betterment of the church. So we work for Christ here at Harvest Decatur. We work for Christ here at Harvest Decatur. Can I get an amen on that? We share that as a church. All of us, priesthood of the believers, we're all working. Some of y'all were here yesterday. Many of you were here yesterday, working hard on the church at our work day. I know you were here, because Sonia told me you were. (laughs) I was, ahem, playing basketball, so. And you got a lot done, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the hard work of those of you who labored in that way. Let me say this as well too, you know, I, I, I'm going off script here. We have a hardworking group of people here at Harvest Decatur. I don't think Paul would rebuke this church like he rebuked the Thessalonians. And if I could be just pastoral for a second, some, some of you, yeah, maybe you need to learn how to work better, work harder, work as unto the Lord. Some of you need to learn how to rest. Some of you need to learn how to take a day off and spend time with your family, plan a vacation, and go some with your family and rest. You need to learn that there are limitations to how much you can give and work. And that's perfectly biblical too. God 
work six days and on the seventh he rested. Why did God rest? Did he need to rest? No, he doesn't need to rest. He did that to teach us. He did that for us to model our lives after something that we need to rest. Let's get really practical here. Let's talk about how this should be lived out in your life. If you're here this morning and you're a stay-at-home mom, raising your kids, schooling, whatever the case may be, that's a good percentage of our church here at Harvest Decatur. Work hard at that, ladies. Work hard and own that and work as unto the Lord in your duties and your task. As a housewife, as an educator for your children, I know the world might demean you for that role. God doesn't and this church doesn't. That's an important role. Work hard. Work as unto the Lord with those duties. If you're a single mom working hard with the job, trying to raise your kids, same thing. Work as unto the Lord. Do it to the Lord's glory. If you're a man in this church supporting yourself or supporting your family nine to five or whatever your hours are, you go work as unto the Lord. And do it cheerfully. Don't be singing on the way to church, 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Don't be singing, everybody's working for the weekend, all right? Do do it joyfully. Do it as unto the Lord. And as I've said before, part of your job as a man is to die early and give all your money to your kids and to your wife. That's honorable. (laughs) Do that. Let me say this too. We got some... We got some teenagers, we got some preteens in the room this morning. It's great. I'm glad y'all are here. Your duty as a young person right now is primarily school and possibly two chores at home. So young people in this room, work as unto the Lord. Work hard at that. Do that as an act of worship. Establish habits in your life right now at age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that will serve you well for the rest of your life and work as unto the Lord. You know, in my household, we like to make this little statement in the morning when we're trying to get to work. I say it like this, we are cafes, we work, 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 work. And we sing that little ditty every morning as we are off to work. It's like the, the seven dwarves going off to work. I got that from my sister. She, she used to do that little ditty, and it's part of my heritage. My grandparents worked hard. My parents work hard. Sonia's parents work hard. Sonia works hard. And so we're trying to pass down that heritage, and if you want to call it a Protestant work ethic, go for it. I'm trying to pass that down to Alistair and live that out. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's another reason why the church shouldn't tolerate idleness. Idleness leads to waywardness, but idleness also makes you a burden to others. And I'm not so sure that's not the main reason that Paul is talking here and rebuking the idol within the church. I'm, I'm not so sure that's not the reason Paul says, keep away from the brother who is walking in idleness. It, it's not just to help that brother through church, bliss, church discipline to turn from sin. It's also because idle people inevitably start to sponge on church resources. And Paul wants to protect the church from that. Paul wants to protect the church from people who are a burden to the church. 
and to faithful people within the church. There's a lot in the book of Proverbs on this. Proverbs 18, 9, I'll just give you a sampling here. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 19, 15 says, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. That sounds kind of like our passage here, right? Proverbs chapter six, verse six says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. Whew, that's strong stuff. I had a conversation with a person once about that passage right there, the ant and the sluggard, who tried to convince me that that's allegorical of Christ and the church, like Christ was the ant and we are the sluggard. It's like, what? It probably won't surprise you that that person didn't have a job, didn't work hard and cause problems for all of his previous employers. That person was a philosopher. And I often think that philosophy is the hobby of those who are idle, the busybodies, so to speak. Here's why Paul has such an issue with this. It's because within the church, who's gonna pick up the slack for the sluggard? Answer the ants. Y'all remember that Aesop's fable, grasshopper and the ants? Grasshoppers starving comes to the ants and Ants ask him, why didn't you work throughout the winter? He says, I was busy making music and being merry. Who's going to care for the grasshoppers at church? Who's going to care for the sluggards at church? The ants are. And Paul says here, don't let the grasshoppers be a burden to the church. You need to deal with that idleness. They need to deal with their own idleness, and you as a church need to help them deal with that. Paul says in verse 7, let's look at our Bibles together. Look how Paul sets an example for them. He says, for you yourselves know how we ought to imitate us, how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, did Paul ever receive support from churches? Yes, he did. Did Jesus ever receive support? support from people who wanted to support him. Absolutely, he did. And, you know, Jesus worked hard ministering to people. So that was a good investment for people to give to him so he could focus on that work. Paul even says elsewhere that elders who teach are worthy of remuneration for that duty. But in this case, here's what's interesting. In Thessalonica, where the problem with idleness was so bad Paul says, I'm not gonna, I didn't take a salary when I was with you. I didn't take any remuneration, even though I could have. Because you needed to learn a lesson about how to work hard. So I worked night and day. Conceivably, Paul was working through the day as an evangelist, preaching the gospel. At night, he was doing his tent-making, leather-working thing in order to support himself so he wouldn't be a burden to the church. Why did he do that? Why, you know, he didn't have to do that. He, he was worthy of remuneration by the church. If anybody was worthy of that, Paul was worthy of that. But he didn't receive that in order to set an example for them. 
Verse 8, look at the end of verse 8, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Look at verse 9. It was not because we do not have that right. We do have that right. But in order to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I remember reading about John Smith as a kid. You remember John Smith, Jamestown, 1609, came and tried to get the settlers in the new land to work hard, and they, were, they all wanted to hunt gold in the new land. And so their whole settlement was in shambles, and John Smith showed up and threw the gauntlet down and said, if anyone doesn't work, he will not eat. And that turned the settlement around. That made it successful. And I thought that was amazing when I was a kid reading that. It's like, oh yeah, that's a good principle. Little did I know that Smith, Smith was just quoting the Bible here, 2 Timothy 3.10. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, God help us. I, I know we... We live in Decatur, Illinois, and it's tough. Macon County at one time had the highest unemployment rate in the state. There was an article that came out a few years ago in USA Today that ranked Decatur number one as the city with the worst job loss ratio in the country. We're number one. We're, it's not a good thing. So yeah, I know times are tough, but and so I, I think that's why this is important for us to not let economic difficulties be an excuse for idleness. Harvest Decatur, if you can find work, work. Work and support yourself and support others. And if you have a job right now, which most of you do, praise God for that and work hard and represent the Lord well in your workplace. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Put this, put this on your rear view mirror and read it on the way to work every day. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And let me be clear about this too. There are times when work is not possible for people. There is. And we need, we need to reckon with that. There are times when work is not possible due to disabilities or joblessness or economic turmoil. Think of the 1930s and the Great Depression when people wanted to work and they didn't have opportunities to work. And in cases like that, we need to show compassion and grace and even charity to those who are jobless. I think that's why Paul says this so strongly here. I think that's why he says, get to work and don't be a burden to the church in order that the church might indeed help those who really need help. And that was, that was the case in the early church. The early church was a generous church, always helping out people. In fact, one of the first things the church did was organize deacons to help with the daily distribution of food with the, with the widows, Acts 6, because, you know, widows were destitute in that society. And so, you know, that benevolence was a part of the early church from the very beginning. And, I, and notice, too, Look at verse 10 with me. Notice the wording. The wording is important here. If anyone is not willing to work. Does everybody see that? 
let him not eat. It's not a lack of working that Paul reproaches here. It's a lack of willingness, willingness to work. Warren Wiersbe adds this statement. You can read this on the screen. Paul recognizes the fact that some people could not work, perhaps because of their physical handicaps or family responsibilities. That's why he phrased the statement as he did, if anyone is not willing to work. It's not a question of ability, but willingness. When a believer, this is key. Everybody listening? Right at the end of that quote. It says, when a believer cannot work and is in need, it is the privilege and the duty of the church to help him to help that person and by the way that's always been the case with Christianity Christianity has always been a generous and charitable religion for 2,000 years that's been the case if you want evidence of that just just drive around and look look at the parachurch ministries that were started by Christians throughout our country just look at the hospitals that were started by Christians I was born in Aurora Presbyterian Hospital in Aurora, Colorado. Some of you were born at St. Mary's. I guarantee none of you were born at Atheist Memorial Hospital. Those don't exist. And, you know, look, look at the number of homeless shelters and food pantries and benevolence ministry that were started by Christians. Those ministries aren't typically started by atheists. Do you know why? Because part of atheism is this Darwinian worldview that only the strong survive. So to help the weak is against their worldview. The weak got to die so the strong can survive. That's not the way the Christianity is. Never was. So let's be careful here. It's not both. It's not either or. It's both and. We are generous as Christians and we expect people who are able to work hard. Both and, both and. That is our heritage as Christians. Embrace that heritage. That goes back all the way to the Old Testament and to the Jewish mindset that commands us to care for the widows and the fatherless and the foreigner among us. So be generous, Christian. But don't be idle. Be charitable, even. But we should not enable those who are idle and should be working. If you, more, if you want more on how to strike that balance, there's a book that our deacons read a while back. I've read it too. It's called When Helping Hurts. I would commend that book to you to read through it and to think through this a little bit more. One more thing, and then we'll take communion together. Write this down as number three in your notes. Why should the church not tolerate idleness? Idleness leads to waywardness. Idleness makes you a burden to others. Thirdly, idleness causes meddling. Remember what I said earlier about that word idle? It doesn't mean inactive. It doesn't mean unbusied. The Greek atoktos means disordered and unruly. Unruly. It means, in this context, busy, but busy doing the wrong kinds of things. And Paul says in verse 11, look at verse 11 for me, with me. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. That's not an oxymoron, to walk in idleness. They are busy, but they're busy doing the wrong things. They are doing things that are unproductive. They're not busy at work, Paul says, but busy bodies. 
ouch. That, that's, like I said, that's, that's a very unflattering description of someone. You know, go back to that thought experiment that we did at the beginning. Imagine you're that person in the Thessalonian church right there and the, the, the letter's being read and it's exciting and it's encouraging. And then all of a sudden, Paul talks about these busybodies. Some of you are busybodies and need to get to work and everybody looks around in the room and sees that person who's kind of idle in the church. And it's, it's kind of like that Southwest Airlines commercial. Want to get away, you know? Everybody's looking at you. Paul's... He outs them with this letter. And maybe, maybe there was good intention behind that at first. Maybe they were thinking, Jesus is coming back. Why do I need to work? Jesus is coming back soon. Let's just go sit on a hill and wait for him to come back. There, there might have been some good intention behind that, but after a while, they justified their idleness and their sponging off other people. Or, or maybe they thought that manual labor was, un, was beneath them and they didn't want to do that. Whatever the case, Paul says right here, stop being a busybody. Stop meddling in other people's affairs. You need to get to work. You, are, you aren't busy at work, you're a busybody. There's, there's wordplay here in Greek. You aren't ergazomai, working. You're para-ergazomai. You're working around working. And that's not good. You are pseudo-working. Paul hurts some feelings with these statements, I'm sure. And I think Paul's trying to get their attention. By the way, he's not done. Look at verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus. There's a little bit of good cop, bad cop here. We command and encourage, you know? Pat you on the back, kick you in the pants, get to work. And Paul, he says it, I mean, it's, it's pretty strong here. We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ooh, serious. Paul, and here's why this is so serious. Paul doesn't want the reputation of the church sabotaged by lazy and indolent people in the church. And so he says, verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work, get to work quietly. It's an interesting word, quietly. And that, that leads me to believe that the issue of 2 Thessalonians 2 is related to the issue of 2 Thessalonians 3. Remember in 2 Thessalonians 2, there were these people going around like chicken little saying, the end of the world is coming, the end of the world is coming. Or more accurately, they were saying, you know, Christ already came and you missed it. Just crazy. And so Paul, quiet, he's, shh, stop talking crazy. Quit meddling in other people's affairs and talking like you know something and get to work. Stop talking nonsense. Be quiet and get to work. If Paul were alive today, he might just say to some Christians out there, get off Facebook get off Twitter. Shh, stop talking and get to work. We command and encourage such persons, these idle in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
Idleness leads to waywardness. It leads to burdensomeness. It leads to meddlesomeness. We need to deal with this in the church. We need to guard our church against that. Now, here's a question you might be asking. Here's something I was asking myself yesterday as I was preparing this message. And it's this. What, what possible significance could this have for the gospel? So just, I mean, just refresh your points here. Idleness leads to waywardness. Idleness makes you a burden to others. Idleness causes meddling. How does this relate to the gospel, Pastor Tony? What does this have to do with Christ dying for our sins? Why is Paul so hot and bothered about this when just a few verses before this, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he said, but we always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was so good, just a few verses before, and now he's rebuking them for being idle. I thought about this yesterday. In fact, I, I couldn't walk away from this message until I figured out what does 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12 have to do with the gospel? And here's the conclusion I came to. You know, the Apostle Paul says very clearly in another passage of Scripture that we, as Christians, we got any Christians in this room? Paul says, we as Christians are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are bought with a price. So, therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Now, in the immediate context of the passage, Paul's dealing with sexual sin. He is. You can look it up on your own and I mean, the essence of that argument is you belong to Christ now. Quit sinning sexually. Stop it. Just stop it. And that's, that's good. I mean, yeah. We, why? Why, Paul? Why? We could ask rhetorically. Why, why should we stop sinning? There's grace. There's grace. And Paul says, because you were bought. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought. You were paid for. What, what were we paid for? What, what, what were we paid with? We were paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. So no longer do we belong to ourselves, we belong to the Lord. Christ purchased our salvation. He purchased our redemption. He purchased our eternity. And also he purchased our lives so that we would no longer live a life of sin and wickedness you were bought by him, Christian. And so Paul says elsewhere that we are actually slaves to righteousness. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a glorious thing that we can actually represent Christ in that way. And we can actually defeat patterns of sin and evil in our lives because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so because of that, we can actually put to death the deeds of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, enmity, strife, drunkenness, greediness, covetousness, bitterness, and even this sin, idleness. Put it to death. You've been bought with a price, Christian. 
You are a child of God. We sang about that today. You belong to God the Father through Jesus' blood. And you know what? Because you're a child of God, you need to act more like daddy. And the Holy Spirit's going to force that inside of you. And God loves to work. Jesus loves to work. And so God, through his servant, the Apostle Paul was telling the Thessalonian brothers, brothers, you are children of God and God is a worker, so get to work and don't be idle. And God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us this morning at Harvest Decatur through this passage, February 17th, 2019, saying, Harvest Decatur, you are the sons and daughters of God. You represent him before the world. You represent King Jesus. You represent your Father in heaven. And life is short. So get to work. And don't be idle. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. God, as we enter into a time of communion, as we remember the price that was paid for our salvation. Lord, may this communion time be a time of worship and celebration, but also a reminder that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. And Lord, we don't put to death the things of our flesh in order to be saved. We do that because we are saved. We are already sons and daughters of God. By faith in the finished work of Christ, remind us of that now. And may this time of worship be a time of focus too on how we can better live like our Father in heaven, obey him, how we can better represent Jesus Christ, our King. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign in this moment right now to convict us and encourage us and show us how we can better do that. Do that work now, we pray, Lord. Do it now.